13. And let's go ahead and stand, please, and our portion this morning is verses 10 through 14. Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 10 through 14. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for your help in preaching your word, that I would not say anything that would contradict your meaning, your purpose, your intentions. That I would speak your words in truth. That they would have the power of your spirit upon them. That we would think properly and soberly and rightly about our lives in this world and their conduct. And so please help us. Help us this morning, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. I will return to this at the end this morning, but I think that we would all recognize that there is probably more of an immediate urgency for this passage upon the reader's the original readers of the sermon than there is on us. But there are plenty of opportunities for us to take this passage to heart. The pastor has, towards the end of his message, at what to us is the end of chapter 12, told us that we must serve the Lord acceptably, which includes a reverence and a godly fear a right way of thinking about who the Lord is and what our place before Him is. Some of that, folks, is stuff that we might think of as inconsequential. We perhaps underestimate how important it is to God for us to be good citizens, good employees, good husbands, and good wives. But the Lord has touched on those things. And then the Lord has reminded us that it is really important that we maintain a New Testament orientation. And one of the things, by the way, folks, that makes us Baptists is our insistence upon 
a New Testament orientation to worship and service. And in this portion that we have read this morning, the pastor has once again returned to a common point of reference for his reader, the service of the tabernacle or the service under, of the temple. To be an Old Testament believer required a regular and faithful observance of the Levitical system. Those sacrifices never substituted for a heart of faith, but out of a heart of faith, those people brought their sacrifices to God in accordance with the law. And if they were really on the ball, they would understand that they were coming to the Lord in faith, that it was never going to be possible for any of those animals or the blood that was shed to really fully absolve them of the guilt of their sinfulness. We are not under the old covenant system. But we are nevertheless worshipers. And just as their faith had a dimension of real reality to its conduct, so our faith must have a dimension of reality to its conduct. This is one of the most difficult things, folks, I think, to get across, and particularly to get across to people, and I'm not trying to be offensive to any of you, but but to people like so many of us who have grown up in church, who know all the songs, who know the right things to do and the times to do them, who know the right responses to the questions that would be posed to them is that God is probing much farther than just what we say verbally and what is obvious superficially, but to what is the genuine condition of the heart. If I could put it this way, If I could return to this, to summarize, I think, the point of the text is that for a New Testament believer, right and reverential worship is a full commitment to Jesus Christ in spite of, in spite of the ridicule that will come. The pastor lays for us the groundwork for this position by talking to us about the Old Testament system in which he makes both a contrast and a comparison. He's made lots of contrasts, folks, in the book of Hebrews. And he returns to that style of writing in this passage. For instance, and you look at verses 10 and 11, here is a clear contrast that it is very much an us-versus-them mentality when it comes to Old Testament and New Testament believers. That may be a little harsh-sounding to us who are so reverential towards the Old Testament, but notice what the pastor writes. We have an altar. 
We have an altar where they have no right to eat, which served the tabernacle. It's us or them. It is one or the other. And he's obviously, folks, speaking metaphorically, there's no physical altar, there's no place on planet earth that we as New Testament believers can go to find this altar. But we have it. There is the contrast. Or there is one of the contrasts. We have an altar. They which serve the tabernacle, those who are participating in the Levitical system, they, they, do not, they are not welcomed at that altar. And part of the reason for that is the second contrast of the passage. Verse number 11, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. They brought animals. They brought sheep and goats and cows. And they offered that blood. And again, if they were rightly oriented to the Lord, they were bringing those offerings from a position of faith. They brought them out of belief to God. But they brought animal blood. Whereas in verse number 12, wherefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, We have an altar that they're not welcomed at because we have the blood of Christ and those who persist in the Levitical system to this day do not. They have the blood of animals. So there are the contrasts. But there is a comparison, folks. There is a similarity in in looking at the contrast. We don't want to throw out the comparison. We don't want to miss... Really, the main point that he is making here, to go back again to the passage, we have an altar where they have no right to eat which served the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. The blood is brought into the sanctuary, but the body is burned Outside the camp. In Exodus chapter 29 and verses in verse number 14, God says to Moses, But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. Leviticus 4.12, Leviticus 4.21, Leviticus 6.11, Leviticus 8.17, Leviticus 9.11. Burn it without the camp. Take it outside. Get it away from the congregation. If this were the camp, folks, if, if our church building was the tabernacle or the temple, the blood would be offered inside, but all the remainder of those animals would be burned away from us 
Get them out of the way. Don't bring them in here. Leviticus 16, 27 and 28 on the annual Day of Atonement. After the blood of the bull and the goat were offered, their bodies were burned outside the camp. So all who were familiar with the Old Covenant system, they well understood this. The blood came in, but nothing else did. Only the blood, the body was outside. To go back to Hebrews chapter 13. Verse number 11, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, here's the comparison, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Just as the body of those animals was taken away from the camp and burned So Jesus was taken away from the congregation and sacrificed. Now why is he making this point, folks? What is he he endeavoring to accomplish in this? Why do they have no right to our altar? Let's let the picture Develop. Let's let it emerge, right? Verse 10. We have an altar. They have no right to that altar. They have no right to that altar because they are offering animal sacrifices and the pastor has spent all of chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 pointing out to us the inadequacies of the blood of those animals. And the inadequacies of the entire system that it revolved around men who themselves needed to have their own sins dealt with. And the fact that those men kept dying and they needed to be replaced by other men who needed to have their sins dealt with. This is exactly what Paul was arguing with the Galatians about. If what Jesus did on the cross was enough, question, was it enough? Then why would you need the law any longer? Where would you plug the law in if you really understand that the blood of Christ is enough? Paul's position was you're going back and bringing the law back into the church Because you don't believe that the blood was enough. You believe that the blood can only be helped if it has the law to carry it along. What is the picture that is emerging? They have no right to our altar. Because our altar is the altar of the blood of Christ. But. But. Their sacrifices and our sacrifice are sacrifices of disgrace. They are sacrifices of disgrace. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, says the law. In other words, 
why does God do this? Why would God say, again, if, if I could steal the analogy, if, if a local Baptist church was the sanctuary, why is it okay to bring the blood of the animal in and offer it here and burn the body of the animal out there? What message is being conveyed? And the message that is being conveyed, folks, is that that animal is being slain in disgrace as a component of the curse. When Jesus came to his own, his own rejected him. John 1.11 And when Jesus hung on the cross, he asked the same question of his heavenly Father. Why hast thou forsaken me? So whether it is an old covenant offering or a new covenant offering, all of our involvement in the offering, folks, recognizes this, that there is something shameful that is going on. That there is something wrong that is being addressed. That there is a punishment, a punitive dimension to what is happening. Back to the text then, because right now we have a command. We just have an explanation in verses 10 through 12. We have an altar. On our altar, the blood of Christ was shed. But our Savior's body was burned outside of the community. The Old Covenant people, they don't have any right to our altar. They had an altar where animal blood was shed. But those bodies were burned outside of the community as well. Verse number 13, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. We recognize the common denominator. We recognize the distinctions that one is not the other. And so because we are New Testament people, we identify with Jesus. And again, folks, I would suggest to you that verse number 13 is highly figurative metaphorical language. In other words, where is Jesus? Where would we go on the map to get to that place? And we, of course, know that there is no place that we can go. But there has always been this, folks. There's always been, in the true practice of Jehovah's religion, whether Old Testament or New Testament, There's always been a reproach to it. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse number 7, Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation 
And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. So here's where everybody lives. But if you want to, again, in figurative language, if you want to go visit the Lord, you've got to go outside. You've got to go out of the camp. A deliberate activity on the part of Moses that reflects a very real dimension of what it means to be a believer. This is, by the way, folks, in verse number 13, the main command of the paragraph. Take your place with Jesus. Take your place with Jesus and bear the reproach He bore. And reproach is a word that refers primarily to verbal abuse. Before they ever got around to actually beating him and then crucifying him, Jesus spent a substantial part of his earthly ministry being ridiculed. He was called insane. He was called demon-possessed. His motives were questioned. His authority was questioned. His beliefs were questioned. So when it comes to our own salvation, what does reverential, acceptable service really look like? It looks like taking the reproach of Christ. Our Savior, folks, was condemned as a criminal. He wasn't hailed as a hero. He was condemned as a criminal. And His crucifixion was a capital punishment. But do we understand clearly, folks, that it wasn't just a capital punishment in the eyes of the Roman government. It was capital punishment in the eyes of His heavenly Father. So that when it comes to our own practice and our own conduct as believers, the expectation is that we will bear His reproach. Romans 15.1 We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, for even Christ pleased not himself. But, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Two times we're explained that in Hebrews. Hebrews 10.32, call to remember the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while she were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. Both by reproaches and afflictions. I remember many years ago, this was when I 
came to Omaha in 1984, things were still very tense with the state of Nebraska concerning the right to have a Christian school. And in the spring legislative session of 1984, at the governor's urging, the Nebraska legislature passed a law that allowed parents to put their child in a non-accredited school for religious reasons. It was revolutionary because if those, and we have folks here who know firsthand what this was like, that, that the state of Nebraska was imprisoning parents, fathers, for putting their children in a Christian school. And I remember having a conversation with a man about things that were going on at that time and a man who was, to avoid being sent to prison, was trying to get out of the state and had contacted this man about accommodating him and he said, I, I, I can't help you. You're a fugitive from justice. I don't want to get dirty with your obedience to the Bible. Hebrews 11.24, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now folks, please do not misunderstand the text. The pastor is not telling us to be rude, crude. He is not telling us to go out of our way to look for a fight. He is not telling us to alienate ourselves from people who are practicing Christianity differently than we do. That's not what is going on in the text. The point he is making is this. Our Savior was reproached. He took the ridicule of men and the wrath of the Father on our behalf. And now, what are we going to do? Now where will we take our stand? Where will we be found? And that brings us then to verse number 14. The command is, Go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. And here is why, verse number 14 for here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And, and in the explanation, folks, we, we understand in a very, by the way, not just historical, but I think relevant sense, we understand what the issue is. Within the structure of Hebrews, this, of course, takes us right back into the chapter of faith, which is why I would point out that verse number 14 is arguing that it is a dimension of our faith to take our stand with Christ. What does it mean to believe in Him? Well, very simply, folks, it means to believe in Him and to identify with Him. When where He stands and what His position is, is going to incur the ridicule 
of the world. That language there in verse number 14 is taken right out of the chapter. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promises in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Here we have no continuing city. Hebrews 11.13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from once they came out, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. But here we don't have that kind of city. That is a city prepared for us. Hebrews 12.22 Year come to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Part of what is acceptable and reverential service in the New Testament, folks, is walking away from old covenant practices. It really is. We do not honor the Lord. We do not manifest faith in His name by returning to the law of Moses as a means of living. When He has spoken so pointedly and clearly about its expiring and its fulfillment and its weakness, But this does not mean that the reproachful aspect of living a life by faith has somehow evaporated. Our Savior was treated as a criminal and in a very real sense He became a criminal. And He was completely and totally out of sync with His world. Now here's where it gets a little, I don't want to say dicey, but here's where we need to start to think through this a little more pointedly. The history of America up to this point has been the unique history of a nation identifying itself as Christian. And one of the consequences of that, folks, is that much of the reproach of Christianity never really did exist in America. Because the Christians were never really viewed as the bad guys, but the good guys. And even in the early days, the passage of the laws were sympathetic to the practice of Christianity, even to things that many people really didn't want to be involved in, but they were respectful of the practice of others. That is the history of our country. I remember, and of course you know that 
I grew up in a home that had no, virtually no religious exposure. We never went to church. I've said I don't think I went to church six times when I got saved in my entire life, and that's probably an exaggeration that's on the generous side. We never went to church. And until the Lord had actually begun to deal with me, I had never given religion much thought at all. And I remember the day I was loading my golf clubs into the trunk of my car. I was either going to go to the driving range and hit a bucket of balls or go to play golf with some guys. And the pastor of the church, the man who would eventually lead me to the Lord, pulled in to actually to talk to my mother. And he approached me in the driveway as I was getting loaded and asked me whether or not I was a Christian. And I thought that was about the stupidest question that anybody could have asked. Because this was America. And who wasn't a Christian? Everybody was a Christian. This was America. Now, I was just an absolute pagan, but if you would have asked me what it was, I was a Christian. Because that was our heritage. That's what I had been taught, by the way, and I don't mean this, that's what I had been taught in public school, was that we were Christians as Americans. And folks, I would like to add my voice to the voice of many who would love to see that day return. But I would just point out to you that if it does not, your obligation is still to stand with Christ. And that it is tragic and unfortunate, but what we're really beginning to see is many people who profess Christ who are caving into the world's demands very rapidly. If you stand up as a prominent voice in Christianity and articulate a biblical viewpoint of womanhood, you're going to get beat down. And if you stand up as a prominent voice of Christianity, and take a stand against the transgender movement and all that is attached to it, you're going to get beat down. And it's no surprise, folks, that we're beginning to see cracks appear. That the price for taking that stand is going to be very high for some people and some organizations. But here is the New Testament mandate. If you want to find Jesus, he's out over there in the scandalized community. Now, don't go looking for scandals. But don't compromise Christ to preserve anything in this world because it doesn't last. Take your stand with him. Go stand with him. Bear his reproach. Nothing enduring is here. Nothing that we have here is worth abandoning him there. Let's pray.